guess you ain't from around here. Yeah, I guess you ain't from around here. Yeah, look at what we did in the past year. Yeah, a lot of green like a pasture, a lot of busted like a pastor. Yeah, enjoy it while I'm still here. I've been on the up and disappeared like the rapture. No mad raps in the cheap shirt. I'm just shopping in my Sears. I ain't no soothsayer, just a truth seeker, booth tweaker. Might just make a meal while I'm getting meeker. Might just make a meal while I'm getting meeker. Do I sound clear? Can you hear the soothing timbre in your ear? Look at what we did in the past year. Yeah, look at what we did. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Ebbs and Flows. That's Esoteric Bible Study for Love of Wisdom. I am Danny Unaki Dan, and I am here today with Nomad. What's up, Nomad? Hey, hey. Excited for this talk. Good to also, see you all. Also here with Joshua the Brands. What's up, Joshua? It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Also on the panel today, we got Morgan. What's up, Morgan? It's a pleasure to be here, guys. So normally on the show, we talk about the chapters from Genesis, but today is a very special episode. And today we have the amazing Gary Wang, author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. How's it going, Gary? Going very well and uh, so happy to be with you guys tonight and looking forward to the discussion. I hope oh, man. we'll say some things that will raise a few eyebrows out there and raise a little bit of curiosity and uh, maybe have people dig into things a little deeper. That's what we're always trying to do. So hopefully, I think it will be. I think we'll uh, we'll actually blow the socks off of some people tonight. <laughs> yeah, we're, we are all so excited to have you on today. We've been talking about this for several weeks already. Uh, getting prepared, uh, going through the books of Enoch and book, you know, and Genesis, uh, to and just having conversations with each other uh, about these topics. So we are more than ready to dive into this. I think it'll be uh, a really fun for um, our listeners as well to hear uh, some of the deeper understandings that you have because you're like a human encyclopedia when it comes to this stuff. Uh, so we appreciate you being here. So thank you very much. And, um, so just to give, uh, you a little, uh, backstory, we we've been going through the book of Genesis. So, uh, we have a few questions, uh, along the way before we get up to Genesis six. And that is kind of like the story with Adam and Eve, uh, when it talks about the serpent, what is your kind of understanding of what that serpent might be? Because it alludes to the fact that there's something else around during the time of the garden. Uh, many people think that it's a actual real serpent being or or some type of angelic being or uh, innuendo for a sexual experience with Adam and Eve. Um can you give us a little bit deeper detail on that? I can, but I'll try and keep it as short as possible because I know there's uh, a <laughs> lot more questions and this is it's a show in itself. So yeah. and it's a great question and it's a great topic. So the the long and the short of it, uh, and I'll back my way into it a little bit, is that I don't believe that there is an allegory there for sex. I know that's very, very popular. I cover it in detail in my book. Um, but when you walk through the language in every reference in the Bible, 
to Eden and what's going on there, whether it's Hebrew or it's Greek, and you take that back to the original languages, it just tells you over and over and over and over that you can't apply those metaphors or alternative meanings because Hebrew and, and Greek can have multiple meanings and nuances for each word. You have to apply that translation as it fits within the sentence, as it fits within the, the verse, as it fits within the chapter, and, and that it, how it fits in the whole Bibles, because you can't have any conflicts. And a lot of times, even within the same sentence, when you start to change the meaning, you uh, you actually get a complete mess of the sentence that just makes no sense. So if you take it isolated and say, okay, that's a possible meaning, you say, oh, yeah, yeah, you start nodding your head. So I actually have a, a four-series uh, document on it for people. If they want to get a hold of me, I, I'll send it out at no charge as I do all the information and documents. And that it walks through every aspect about it. And it's not that I'm against it being a sexual act. I just can't make a case for it scripturally and not run into conflicts or issues. And so I think it's an actual serpent. And this is just more than a serpent. The serpent, as we understand it, is is the aftermath. It's the collateral damage of what is going on. So you have a being that is called a Nahash. And that's translated as serpent. Um, and it is a walking, talking, intelligent, larger being than humans are. And we are not given any reference for when it was created, why it was created. Only that, as you take the hash back to its root word, you get into meanings like necromancer and black magic and stuff like that. So... What we get from that is, is these beings are already followers and maybe priest-like beings for the pantheon of gods or the fallen angels before Eden. And that Adam and Eve are going to be deceived by this serpent who could be coached by Satan because we know he is in the Garden of Eden. And as he's called in the Book of Enoch, uh, Gadrael. Uh, in the in 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 the garden, and that means wall of God. Um, you have Halel, which is Isaiah fourteen twelve. Halel ben Shakar. That's probably Satan's name before uh, his fall. He is the cherubim in Ezekiel twenty eight, and so many different titles. Gadriel, Halel, Satan are just the start of what his titles are and his different looks, because he's also this seraphim serpent type individual as well. Isaiah 6 talks about the seraphim, and he's probably the high priest as well before the fall because he's got these nine jewels, just as the Levites have 12, and that's the priest order that Jesus is actually going to replace when we get through to the end time because it's vacant. They have a human priesthood with the Levites that were temporary, but he as an immortal and sacrificing for the sins will take over, but I'm down another rabbit hole. So this, this being is walking, talking, intelligent, and it deceives Eve, right? Doesn't have sex with her. Um, and it's not Satan having sex with her. How do we know that? Well, it doesn't say... Uh, a word that would be cognate with Diablos as devil would be in the New Testament. It doesn't say Halel. It doesn't say Satan there. It says Nahash. And there's no inference or reference other than there's a serpentine type of connection. But it's more than that. 
after the fall, the serpent is the one that is punished. The serpent loses its legs. It loses its speech. It loses its arms or wings. It loses its intelligence, and it's forced to crawl on the ground. That doesn't happen with Satan. If Satan had sex with Eve, he probably would have went to the abyss. Like the other impassioned angels, he did not. Now, some people say, well, he will at the end of the uh, the end time, at the end of the fig tree generation for a thousand years. Okay, I buy that, but we still don't get any re direct reference other than allegorical interpretation for inferring that it was Satan who... Um, that it was Satan who deceived Eve as opposed to this Nahash. And I'm even open to the fact that Satan coached and did more than coaching for the Nahash. We know in polytheism, particularly out of Hinduism, you get the avatar, avatara understanding. And that would be for people who have heard avatar, but not avatara. It would be the beings that people are avataring into is that process. So the avatar is the receiver of this entity. So in Hinduism, you have Vishnu who would have avatared into different individuals, I think 16 times, including Buddha, to provide extra wisdom. And you have Shiva who uh, incarnated into Aslan, which was not Aslan, I'm sorry, Narashima, who is Ash Ashlan in the lowest uh, Trying to remember the, the 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 Narnia tales that he wrote about is based on, and Aslan is how Christ would be incarnated in another world, another planet, another type of beings is how Lewis had phrased that. That's a Christ consciousness concept. That's a New Age concept, and an Antichrist by sort of analogy will be an incarnation, which the the polytheists and the Gnostics are talking about in terms of the Christ consciousness that's coming. It'll be that Antichrist figure wrapped into the Messiah. So you have this ability that Satan has to do that as the avatar. And how do we know that? Because in the New Testament, he enters into Judas to give him the courage to betray Jesus. And so he could have avatared into the Nahash because A was there, had access to Eden, and B, the Nahash may have needed that to go through with it because of the consequences that would have been taken out. And one of the reasons why the fallen angels took the oath of harem anathema that is talked about in the book of Enoch is so that they would carry it out to the end, no matter the consequences, because they understood the consequences. So all of that is going on, but it is not nothing there to connect it directly to the Nahash. But it doesn't mean that all of them may have been disappeared or, or transformed. If you understand the power and the free choice of fallen angels, they could have taken some off earth, they could have taken them some in earth, and they could have taken them into another dimension that they control, like their heaven, which is Hades or Sheol. So I know that's a long answer to, to a short question, but I side with the literal aspect of it, and I back that up because I just can't make it make sense. I mean, and I know Cain can be uh, translated out of Hebrew as acquired, just as Cain was acquired. But also all of the wording there is exactly the same wording as you go through with all of the uh, Cainites and, and people produced from Cain. 
it's the same language except for the acquired part. It's just identical all the way through. And even again, when you get down to, to Seth in, in Genesis 4 as well. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, I think you answered a lot of the questions that we had uh, been talking about about that and uh, and put it very well. Um, so thank you. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll let one of these other uh, hosts ask a question too. So I'm not the only one. Go ahead, Joshua. Joshua, go for it. Um, so one of the things that is interesting to me is how the bronze serpent was raised up in the wilderness. And then Christ refers to himself as the serpent as well. that gets raised up on the cross. So it reminds me of the serpent in the tree in Genesis. So we have it in the beginning, the middle, and the end in a kind of way, you know. Um, because if indeed it was a fig tree in the beginning, because they use fig leaves to sew uh, and cover themselves, right? So we got the fig in the beginning, fig in the middle, when Jesus curses it, and then we got the fig tree uh, prophecy that we were kind of talking about before we began recording. Well, in a way, the serpents come back and, you know, is on that fig tree again, um, telling everybody hey you know you can have eternal life or wisdom or whatever it might be right so it's kind of funny to me how uh we're taught very early on in genesis when we were studying it about how um we were man was giving uh, dominion over the earth and every seed bearing plant and the fruits and so on and so forth and so it's it seems as though that authority was usurped or stolen so whatever occurred there it seems it's to relevant. me like it, yep. yeah, it's relevant to that like trying to usurp that authority um so um so, so how are they me, doing that today you know yeah so for me to understand prophecy you have to understand prehistory because all of the context and the allegories are located there so in this case when you have the serpent and in genesis three fifteen, you have the serpent seat let was part of why people think that that was Satan who created the serpent seed. That's actually a curse and a prophecy. And that's not an unusual um, way of doing things in, in the Old Testament, particularly if you do another uh, sort of quick analogy so that people follow what I'm talking about, is that when you get to just on the other side of the flood with Noah and his son Ham, and uh, Ham does some sort of sexual violation by the language that's going on there yeah um i won't go into the whole sordid argument is it hit uh noah being violated or is it his wife um it's not all that relevant i know it's an interesting juicy subject but um what you have going on there it's canaan who is cursed not ham so you have this act and this cursing and it's prophetically filled through Canaan. And the same thing is going on in Genesis 3.15. So it's not that there's going to be a seed of the Nahash, and there's not a seed of Satan. It's going to be fulfilled through Genesis 6 with the seed of the seraphim watchers who are going to plant that serpent seed. And I think that's the best sort of explanation. There's a hand that just went up. So... Um, uh, I'll, I'll wrap this up quickly and come back, and I'll just connect it to the end time, is that you're going to see Antichrist counterfeit everything that Jesus does. He has to for the pedigree, 
from a resurrection to an Armageddon to everything, including Jesus being raised up like the seraphim. Uh, and you have Nahash and Seraph used throughout that uh, narrative in Hebrew, but it's the bronze image that is going to cure when it's looked upon that is the hebrew word seraph or seraphim the serpent angel right the other times it's nahash seraph is used a couple of times with poisonous in there as well but it actually means poisonous as you because it's got multiple (laughs) meanings right so um and what's really interesting about that is antichrist will have to not only resurrect but be raised up like that seraphim because he is that serpent seed ultimately fulfilled. That's counterfeiting everything that Jesus uh, was said to have done about it. And before Jesus actually comes back for his uh, his second return. And so we need to understand these things because it's going to be very difficult not to be deceived because even the elect will be deceived if that were possible and jesus forewarned us that it is so we need to take these things to hit the heart so yes we're going to see that whole thing come back and come around and be raised up into that serpentine religion right that's the enochian mysticism from before the flood that crosses the flood at babel and babel is the root word for babylon that's the religion and nimrod picked picked up as, and, and and opposed on people as the uh, polytheist religion as he went through his rebellion and that's the allegory for babylon in the end time so it's going to be this religion that comes about that we need to understand everything about the serpent and it's why i use such strong serpentine imagery throughout my first book and then the second book i do talk about it but and and make more references to the house of dragon as it um, comes about with the raphaim but uh it's the same understanding that we live in a world that Satan offered all of the world to Jesus, who refused it while he was in the desert, because he had the power to do so. But he will give it to the one who will receive it, which will be the Antichrist, who's going to counterfeit everything about Jesus. Beautiful. Thank you. Morgan, did you have something to say when you had your hand raised? I just, um, I... I'm not too familiar with like Jewish texts, but I did read that in the um the Haggadah or Haggadah um book one chapter four punishment of the fallen angels of uh, the angel Shemhazi Shemhazai um lusted after a maiden named Ishtar, and then she tricked him to reveal God's name, and then. And uh, Ishtar used the name to ascend to heaven and escaped her violation from this trickster demon. Um, And then uh, so God rewarded Ishtar with commemorating her in the seventh star in the Pleiades. Okay, so that was a lot to like just. But that's in the Haggad. That's in Jewish text. It is. Um, and then it said, so it said that then it comes and says in Genesis 4, 22, that Nama, N-A-A-M-A-H. So she Nama. was the daughter. Yep. Nama was the daughter of 
Lamech and Zilla, which mm-hmm. was the the man who took two wives, and that's where it ends, right? And uh, the sister of Tubal Cain, and uh, since she was a Canaanite, uh, Nama was the opposite of Ishtar, Ishtar in the Haggad, spoken in the Haggadah. Um, and because the angel Shamden had succeeded in sexual union with Nama, Nama's offspring was Asmodeus, a demon instead of a giant. And then Asmodeus appeared, and, and Asmodeus appeared in the Hobbit. So the sec- so what are it's like A B B A, right? Like a doing and then like an undoing with these words or actions of these fallen angels it's like they're trying to do or undo what has been done um so maybe the sexual act was somewhere else along the line in terms of are you asking whether were there multiple times that the fallen angels had sex with human females no, I'm just saying, like maybe. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't word that right. Uh, the that like the, on the Canaanite side, the, mm-hmm. that's where the the defilement or the sexual act took place. Instead, yes. uh, and that was like maybe why God closed the door after them, or you know. Yeah, I think there's there's a whole series of things that. Uh sort of just sort of increased with intensity in terms of the size of the rebellion that's going on in the Canaanite line. And so you have, you know, Cain, he's going to rebel uh, very shortly, you know, after uh, he's in adulthood, after, you know, the offerings, and then he's going to be ostracized because he's going to kill Abel. Uh, And then he's going to go to a place, which is uh, a rabbit hole, I'm not going to go down, but he finds a wife suddenly and builds a city for people that ought not to be there. Um, And he has a son named Enoch, who he names his first city after. And he has this knowledge that he's learned from Adam, obviously, um, that was significant for all the things he had to do to run this massive piece of property between the Nile and the Euphrates and all of these different uh, types of animals that were, it was a large ranch, it was a large orchard place, so it had crops growing everywhere, and he would have had to have a lot of knowledge, and this was passed on to to, to Cain, but he used that knowledge to, to teach it to Enoch, and Enoch is the one in combination, and I think being coached by Cain to develop it into these seven sacred sciences that's going to merge with the fallen angels, so you see this progression, and it was all designed to uh, with Enochian mysticism, as I like to call it, it was designed to lead people away from God. That was the first primary thing. The second thing was is not to give God credit for anything, not for creating anything. The third thing was is to degrade and slander God. And then the fourth thing was to honor that pantheon of gods that he was worshiping and then had knowledge given to him in return. And you're saying part of that reflected in that Ishtar yeah. story. It's and, a mirror almost. Yeah. It's like- exactly like it's like a snapped open and then snapped shut yep. like a a b b a you know yep. how like yep. the, it's written yep. so yep. 
I was just thinking maybe that could have been it. Like, yep, certainly part of it. And then it continues because in the in the era of Lamech, there's this huge renaissance and expansion of the religion and the knowledge, and that's the yeah. generation where the uh, fallen angels are going to at least the first 200 as Enoch would list them um, is going to have in the first incursion uh, sex with daughters of Canaanites and Lamech has a couple of daughters as you know doorbell rang (laughs) Um, my wife's going to get it don't worry about it so but anyways without losing my train of thought here um, you have uh this this the second incursion going on in Nama is sort of like the one that's mentioned in the Bible of the female. The rest are all sons. And Tubal Cain is like a great artificer, right? He's patriarch, one of the great patriarchs of the Gnostics and 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 the Freemasons and, and Masonry in general, just as Enoch is. And that Nama is going to be well known not just for with Shamdan or Shamyaza. There's different names that she's having sex with angels. Maybe she had sex with many angels. I mean, who knows? But uh, I, I struggle to find that she could survive the fir- after the first birth. But that's that's another sort of rabbit hole. But yeah, she is famous she has a for whole being pit of demons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but uh, she's famous for copulating with with uh, fallen angels. Angels. And so in I think that creation, that partnership to create this violation against the laws of creation, and perhaps even and perhaps with some of the fallen angels who may have taken, let's say, a mother goddess position as an Ashtar or Ishtar. So Ishtar as being a human female would be named after one of the gods, and in, in the case that you were talking about out of the Haggadah. And so you have these mother goddesses as are recorded in in Greek history and other uh, Sumerian history would also have sex with human males to produce giants. In the Sumerian case, the Anunnaki. In the Greek case, you know, there's there's giants that are that are produced there as well. And so if you have them not only counterfeiting the Holy Spirit in the mother goddess and then producing counterfeit life. You have yes. really crossed that threshold of the violations against the laws of creation. And then the only sin that's not forgiven is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So, yes, you see that complete progression. And the Canaanites would have had complete com- uh, complicity in that and held accountable for that as well. And just as the angels will be, were held to their oath because we're all held accountable to our oath, as the Bible says, and says not to do it because. If you do, make sure you fulfill it because you're going to be held accountable for it, not just for what you said you were going to do, but whether it was good or evil in terms of how that oath was taken. Right. Thank you. Joshua, I can let you slide in. Or uh, I was just going to say, wow, I didn't know that about like uh, um, the idea of the female goddess mating with human men and then creating an offspring that way and that is right. related to what the anunnaki are uh well so for example the best one is um in the uh epic of gilgamesh you have uh both gilgamesh and um enkidu created from 
the mother goddess, queen of heaven, Nin or Ninsen, as she's recorded in, in some of the translations. And the father of Gilgamesh is Lugabanda, who's king of Uruk. So he's the human. He could be a human, um, could be a Nephilim already, but this is a specific um, example of an angel taking a female gender in the physical world, mating with a human, um, and creating a giant. And for yeah. people who aren't sure that Gilgamesh was a giant, he's recorded in Sumerian texts and the Ugaritic texts as being 11 cubits tall and four cubits wide. So he became king of Uruk. And as Josephus says, you should measure the kings and the giants by a royal cubit, which is 21 inches versus 18 inches, which would make him 19 feet and a few inches tall and seven feet wide. This was a monster. Holy cow. <laughs> Holy cow. Is there a name for the union between uh, a god, uh, like a fallen woman, uh, and a human man? Is there a name for no, that? No, not specific. No, no. They seem to be talked about in the same respect, whether it's Greek history or it is a Sumerian history. And I think that's because angels are spirit building, uh, beings. They don't necessarily have a sex as being a spirit. But when they choose to take a physical form and a DNA that would come with that soul and the body, that's the oiketarian, that's the word habitation that the angels left. You need a dwelling place in heaven for the spirit and a dwelling place in the physical world to interact physically, then they would pass that DNA on. So to me, if you take that back to its root, it's the same thing. It's just which body they chose to uh, take a physical form in. Are you saying they're avataring in essentially? No, no. they make their own body. Oh, so, they make their own body. Yeah. Okay. Somehow, some way, they have the ability to do it. So, an example of that biblically, so that people who are out there saying, well, well there's, there's no way you can do that from a Christian perspective. Well, we have in the Sodom story, we have uh, the angel of the Lord, which is the pre existent Jesus, uh, who takes a form of a body. And now he's also going to interact physically in the world. He's going to drink, he's going to touch, he's going to eat. And he's not recognized as the angel of the Lord immediately. Now people are going to say, okay, but, you know, as part of the the, the Trinity, he has an impotent power. So he could do that, but not angels. But there are two other angels with him that aren't recognized as angels, and they're referred to as men. And they're doing the same thing. And then it's these two angels that move on to Sodom to see whether or not there's any good people there other than Lot and his family. And that's the individuals that the Sodomites recognize as angels, but they want to have sex with them physically. And we don't know whether or not that means did they want to have a homosexual sex or did they want them to change bodies and take a human female, or I mean, take a... Uh, yeah, human female form to have sex with the human males because they could quickly change forms if they wanted to. Or did they want them to have sex with females to produce the giants? But Sodom is an epicenter of giant creation in polytheism. So it is Gamara as the planting seed or the start of giants in like the tablets of Seth and other Gnostic gospels. I won't go through them all. Um, before the flood, 
But after the flood, it's Sodom. And a lot of people think that the giants were created on Mount Hermon. We're not told that in the book of Enoch, and we're not told that in the Bible. The only thing we're told is they took the oath of Hermathena on Mount Hermon. So they could have gone elsewhere to have done that. Or both, because again, they did it more than once by the text in Genesis 6 4. And Gary, what do you think about people who say that um, these like angels are just messengers, right? Because if you translate the word, doesn't it translate to messenger? And so I've heard some people theorize that they're actually just humans who are inspired by God to bring messages. Uh, what would you say to that? Well, they brought down the brimstone <laughs> with their judgment. Right. Okay. They were authorized so, to do so. Okay. And there are other encounters of angels taking human forms as well. Now, is there part of the definition for Malak being angel in Hebrew as messenger? It's one of the meanings. And that angels act as messengers, as we're told in the New Testament. So that's true. That doesn't mean they're not angels. That's just part of their function and part of the definition. So again, one of the things, I, I mean, I love taking things back to the original language, but you have to apply it as to how it fits the narrative and how it fits the rest of the Bible. So if you say that angels were just messengers and maybe some sort of priest loyal to God at that time as that type of messenger, then you are you going to blanket that throughout the whole Bible? Well, that sort of makes an atrocity almost out of so many verses. It's just, just you get into conundrums that just make no sense. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Do you have any specific examples? I guess for me, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it seems like they were messengers to the city to tell them essentially like to repent this is what's going to happen um but then what are you thinking it was actually their power that brought down the brimstone or could it have still been god's power that brought that down and they were just like the messengers kind of warning about it's, it it's 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 not unusual in the bible for angels to deliver whatever is going to happen as with that authorization just as we'll see in the book of right. revelation right that is not uncommon um, doesn't mean that God couldn't do it. Doesn't mean that Jehovah might not have done it. But Jehovah wasn't there. He sent his messengers to do the job. And just as Jesus talked about in the New Testament with the Roman centurion, when the centurion said it would be done, he knew it was going to be done. And so the centurion said that uh, in, in return, that if Jesus said what he had said, would be done. He understood how things work, that it would be done. And so you have that authorization. Jehovah could have gone there. He could have done the judgment and brought it down, but he chose to to send the angels and to see what they would do to the angelic beings. And then when you get into the New Testament, it's talking about these beings and, you know, in, in Jude 1, 6 and 2 Peter 2, 4, and, and, there's just no way you could you could sort of turn, in my opinion, I, and I don't recommend it, that you turn scripture into a pretzel to and bend it to the ways that suit your preconceived conclusions. I'm not saying you do. I'm just saying that people have to be careful of that. It has to fit. Can you make a justification? Yeah, for it as being a messenger, but does it fit? A messenger. Okay would have to have the authorization, which it did, and the power to do it. So 
we don't know how powerful these angels are. Angels can mean all the different, you know, every order of angel has a different level of order and responsibility, whether it's Dunamis or Icarus or all the different ones, uh, Excusia, uh, Seraphim, they all have different powers and they're also called angels, just as the one class of messengers and um, uh, probably even from a soldier perspective, as it's understood as Saba as the host, they, they fit specific roles for the other angels as well. Do you know if there's any other words uh, used to describe angels? It's just curious to me. Of like, sons of God, such a, sons of God. Okay, because that's host of think, heaven. Stars. I think there's beautiful. I think there's yeah. some confusion where we have these sons of God. All the terms you just mentioned are referred yep. to as messengers, yeah. um, and then in other passages, perhaps they are just messengers, and they've been given sort of the status of angel, right? And so I think you almost have both going on here. Well, we don't we to... don't actually have a scripture that says humans are given the status of angels. Of messengers. So there's no examples that you know of of humans being called messengers in your Oh, opinion. sure. Sure. You I mean rabbis were referred to as messengers, right? Prophets are messengers. Um, but they've been given that as a human, even though they are, you know, don't even though they have human fathers, angels, you know, are, are a whole different sort of sort of understanding. But again, one has to be very careful not to put biases into the narrative and that you can't just because a messenger is used somewhere else in the Bible. Does it go back to the Hebrew word Malak? No, it doesn't. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Is getting at the original use of the word messenger malek uh and where that's used but yeah where it's used it goes back as a messenger it goes back to angel where it's not it goes back to a different word perfect thank you for clearing that up joshua go ahead oh um yeah so as that conversation was taking place i was thinking about how regardless of if it's an angel or a human um in, in a lot of cases they're both performing the same task and that's that they're carrying the word of god so the power is in the word or the edict that's given from the throne so some of these angels uh and correct me if i'm wrong gary because i was curious is this maybe how some of these angels when um putting themselves in in the place of rulership is this how they determine that hierarchy is that based on what they did in heaven like their proximity to the altar for instance so it seems like the closer they were to the altar the more important they would be the more authority they would have and so like the um serpent kind were like uh, the seraphim i think weren't they called the shining ones and it would be because they were close so close to god that they were bronze serpents in a sense right so uh because like moses when he spent time with yahweh he walked away with a, his face was like the sun, right? And so I wonder if that's, is that kind of how they, uh, do they root their authority here on earth based on maybe what they did do in heaven? And um, with the angels for Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance, the way I kind of see that in my head is they were bringing orders from heaven to earth and their orders were, well, we have orders here to uh, destroy this city, yeah, but 
we were told to take you out of here. Yeah. So come on. <laughs> and, and that's a very good point. They're actually have said they've come to destroy the city, not that somebody else was going to. They had the authorization to do that. Yeah. So when you're t- uh, to answer the other questions that you're talking about, yes, there are different orders and ranks. Saba is an army. So you have, which is the host of heaven, uh, uh, host transfers, uh, translates from Saba. And it means, you know, rank and order like an army does. And you would move up and down and be promoted or, or whatever, but you have different positions and when i say that you move up and down and promoted that's more for the rebellious side because they have a saba as well they have a host of of heaven that's rebellious that governs this planet with the psalms uh, 82 council of the gods and over the 70 nations that are talked about both before and after the flood in deuteronomy 32 so yes there there is that be careful with the word shining because all opalescent spirit beings are shining Seraphim, for sure, is a different kind of shining, as in this fiery burning shining, right? So that's why you have that fiery bronze aspect to to the seraphim um, uh, uh, imagery uh, on the on the staff, because it means a uh, you know fiery burning burning serpent angel, as you take seraph back to 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 Hebrew, and so the watchers would probably be close to the top of the angelic order. Certainly Satan before his fall would have headed all of those orders just as he heads the council of gods in Psalm 82. And so seraphim um, are close to the top, but there there may be one of maybe of each rank or four different archangels that are leading each of the four watcher groups around the throne because you get these four winds of heaven these four presences that the book of enoch talks about that seems to be have a special higher position but also seem to be represented from with the seven powerful archangels like michael and gabriel being two of those uh references are made to them as being part of those four presences. Those are the four that come from the throne in the book of Zechariah to fulfill prophecy. They're like the, uh, they are like the winds of prophecy, just as those four riders in Revelation 6 come from the throne and are probably the same beings. So the four watchers around the heaven at the top level with a possibility of one archangel over top of each of those groups are the cherubim, they are the seraphim, they are the archangels, and then it's what the book of Enoch talks about as the Ophanim. And the Ophanim are the ones in the wheels. And one of the reasons why we know the book of Enoch, or at least originally was part of the Hebrew hagiographa uh, or hagiography, um, is because, A, we have pieces of the original manuscript. We don't have it all to verify everything, and certainly there's a few corruptions in the Book of Enoch um, over time. But you get these angels called Ophanim as part of the Watcher group. And we actually get that in the Bible. We just don't recognize that. And so if you go to Ezekiel 1, uh, Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 10, you get the chariot of God, vision and imagery. And within the chariot, you have the cherubim 
And as the book of the Psalms talks about, it pulls the chariot of God in this imagery. But in the wheels of the chariot, and not the wheel itself, because the wheel itself, as it's described, as you take that back to Hebrew, is Gilgal, which is wheel is in Gilgal, base camp for Joshua or Raphaim, uh, or Gilgal Raphaim, wheel of the gods. But the this, zodiac. Yeah. Yep. And in this case, though, the beings in the wheels, they are a little bit different than the trubum, because one of them actually has a face of a trubum out of the four. So it's a distinct being from the trubum. And that's the Hebrew word ofan, which is ofani. Uh, the I am is the male plural. And that's why the book of Enoch calls them ofani, because it comes, it's based on the original Hebrew uh, manuscript and language. And so underneath that, you would have, I kind of group, but I would say you could have two different groups. But I place the trubum and the ofanium as part of one pillar, which angels below them. So they would have another group of angels right below them, and then the messenger angels below that. Seraphim would have uh, a, a group below them, and you could split that into government and religion and then put two columns down there. And the trubum would also have, I'm sorry, the archangels would have their own column as well. I know I'm giving out a lot of detail. Um, we love detail. <laughs> but Again, we could spend a whole show just talking about the hierarchy, but just to give people an idea, there is that hierarchy, and this is the hierarchy that is counterfeited by the fallen angels that they rule from in the council of gods that Halal Satan sits atop of, and that you have that multiplied through the throne rooms, through each of the nations, and each of those positions, and as those nations expanded it, you would have a branch one, and they're representative on earth to carry out that dominion by their spurious offspring, which is why um, they have so many things that go back to these angelic beings in their imagery, usually portrayed on their coats of arms, like lions, like dragons, like uh, eagles or Anunnaki-type figures. And if you look at, you know, an Anunnaki that's depicted in Sumeria, you see one with an eagle face, and then in the identical type of relief, it's got a human face. And that's because Trubum have the face of a man, have a face of an eagle, a face of an ox or a bull, and the face of a lion. So when they take a physical form, they would take one of those faces. And so you get that as that godfather that they would start to link their patriarch through the Raphaim and the and the and, and the Nephilim in their bloodlines and represented on their coats of arms. So when you see a lion, you're probably seeing a trubum. If you see an eagle, you're probably seeing a patriarchal trubum as well. And if you're seeing a dragon, it's a seraphim, so on and so forth. You get the idea, they get the idea behind that. Do you think these uh, angels have, like, are all of the seraphim bad or good or the cherubim bad or good? Or do you think it's sort of a mix, if that makes sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I think you have rebellion amongst all of the different ranks and okay. that all of that rebellious host of uh, heaven fills the identical hierarchy on earth as they do in heaven. Do you know which one's the eagle and which ones are the serpent? Did you say seraphim, the cherubim? 
Seraphim are a serpent, and eagle would be cherubim. Yes. Okay, interesting. Because I'm just thinking of the story and lion. Of, of Enki and Enlil, right? They're sort of yep. often depicted as like uh, an Serpents. eagle and a serpent. Yep. So yep. that's very interesting. I yep. love that concept. Thank you. Yeah, it's 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 really, and if they produced offspring, they would produce giants that would have looked just like them. So just as you have the original kings being depicted as serpents and a lot of the priests, you also have the lion men of Moab, the lion-like men of Gad, and King Arioch of the giant kings out of Mesopotamia, which means lion-like. And you have a god in the Bible named Nergal, uh, which was worshipped by the Avim, and he was a Sumerian god, and he had a lion face. And so you start to wonder, okay, does that mean that those lion men actually did look like lions and they come from a god like Nergal or Mahis or a god like that? And you also have Nibaz, who's also an, an Avim god, and that means in Hebrew, a barking god. So now all of a sudden you have, okay, well, what's with these dog uh, warriors and mythos that's gone on? And then you get into Egyptian mythology and Anubis is a jackal, which is a, another type of dog. And he creates thousands of these uh, dog warriors and they actually live in a city called Sinoopolis. Just as Sinophali is the name for, you know, the dog mythos, right? And you just start to wonder how real that that, how many types of giants may have been there with that understanding that that DNA would pass on to the look. So now you get into the eagle of the Anunnaki. Well, you actually have like Horus, which is kind of an offspring god, but more of a demigod who's got an eagle face and say, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. But now if we move into Southeast Asia, into India, into China, into Japan, they have the Tengu gods. If you Google that, you get these eagle face warriors and priests. And then if you move into the Kishimaya uh, with the Popol Vuh, they have the Zababa. Z or X I B A L B A, and these are owl, bird-faced demigods produced by the giants. And there's one branch called the Camazots. And the Camazots um, is the house of Bat. And if you Google Camazots, you see that Batman outfit. And then you start, and then you start to really realize that when we see these supermen, uh, superheroes, just as the Greeks called their giants heroes, they're all based on these ancient um, demigods and you know you look at superman as an example as the classic example you have uh clark kent who becomes superman but his real name he comes from the house of el el is the parent god in canaan father of baal both oh, well. who created giants so dural and joral are the father and the son's names as he come out, comes out of the house of he house of el and he is a messiah-like figure that none of that imagery is um coincidental and then that s is very snake-like yeah exactly um i had a, a quick question which was uh uh, we read the chapter four and chapter five. It talks about Cain's Enoch and then Seth's Enoch. I was curious as to which one of those Enochs is responsible for the book of Enoch. 
Well, what we don't know in polytheism is is that they uphold Enoch, son of Cain, as their greatest patriarch, and he wrote scripture. And that they like to conflate Enoch, son of Seth, or son of Jared, from the Sethian line, with him. Probably more for cover and protection from the Roman church throughout the last couple thousand years, for the most part, and, and the persecution that would come along with it. So... The question gets to be is, did Enoch write, um, Enoch, son of Jared, write scripture? Probably yes, um, although we wouldn't probably have a surviving manuscript of it. We do get a reference in the book of Jude to Enoch and as being a prophet, and that, that would suggest that he probably did. But the problem is, is Enoch lived before the flood. The Torah comes down in the time of Moses. And so you could have had an accounting of Enoch, but he probably wouldn't have wrote that scripture. But it was certainly about him. Um, So is it possible you could come across a copy of it that was done before the flood that he would have left with the people? Sure, but we don't really have that. The, The oldest pieces of the manuscript we have is Hebrew not whatever the language was before the flood. No, it may have been Hebrew that the descendants of uh, of Seth were, were speaking, but we don't know that. The audible tradition probably would be another, people would say, always passed down by stories, right, through their children and so forth until the yep. writing became more popularized, people have said. Yeah, so, uh, so I, I'm more inclined that there's a lost uh, 70 scrolls that was with the uh, original temple and there's some that are missing and so that when you look at the history of enoch there's a strong connection that there's a missing lost uh, todath of uh, adam of noah several books and that sort of name and that's sort of like the time or the period of them that used to make up all of genesis it's possible that some of that was lost and genesis is a recap of that additional Mm. detail um, so, but yeah. again, that can't make say so that much for sense. sure, but it does mm-hmm. make sense to me. Because you have everything, like every detail that like it's completely dry that you need to know in Genesis. Everything, like everything, it's perfectly written, perfect, but it just has no, it's just like cut and dry. There's no like, okay, this is this. It leaves Context. you like having yeah, to... Yeah, really There's no go additional look information that comes with it. Yeah, yeah, it's just dry and no water. Yeah, stingy, as I've said, people have yeah. said you shouldn't say God's book is stingy, but well, <laughs> so, so we you did, would say we would. That, I would love to have more detail in but in the Bible, no doubt about it. So, so you'd say that the book of Enoch more likely comes from Enoch, son of Cain. No. No, I think um, the first Enoch is probably traces itself back to the Israelites. Um, But I would say second Enoch, third Enoch, probably the book of giants would probably be more of the Enoch son of Cain writings. Um, Mm. And I would also suggest that there's a conflation of the two and that I would also say that there's been some corruptions within First Enoch to reflect some of the history uh, of some of the translators or people have transcribed it down through the ages. 
I like to have the uh, Giaz version, which is the longest version, as opposed to the Aramaic version, which is comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Greek version, because um, you get all of the the sort of you get a few more verses and context in it. But there's one in there's one passage in there that, and I, there's a few that are shows some corruptions. I have a great document on this if people want to get. I'll point out some of the and that's corruptions. the Ethiopian version, right? Yes, the one yes. then from the Ethiopia. Giaz, yeah, is the longer version. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's the one I like to use. Um, but in all of them, you have uh, Enoch living to be, you know, 500 years old. Well, that sort of diverts from scripture. Enoch was taken to heaven at 365 years. So to me, that would be that conflating and usurping by, you know, the translators, you know, the original translator of the Giez version when it was originally found was a fellow by the name of Alexander Bruce, a descendant of Robert the Bruce. Uh, you know, all of these bloodlines that I talk about in my book. I mean, and he was a Gnostic. So I'm a descendant um, of Robert the Bruce. Yeah. Seriously, though. Well, that's good. <laughs> I have nothing, nothing against it. All I'm saying is, is, is he, he obviously would have, I think he corrupted that. You also get this one passage in there as well, is that the angels um, created the ark, built the ark for Noah in the book of Enoch. Well, that's not scriptural. That's a change, but that's a Gnostic concept as well. So you get some of those types of corruptions that are in there. But what I say to people is, is that, uh, I like First Enoch. I think it runs about ninety nine percent directionally well with uh, with the Bible and adds more context. But anywhere it diverts, you have to recognize it, flag it, and understand we do not have the original Hebrew manuscript. So we have to take everything that's in there and only measure it against the Bible if it lines up with the Bible perfectly. Maybe additional information, but it still has to line up. So I, I mean, I like it when it calls the angels the sons of gods. That makes perfect sense. That sort of lines up, for example. Or whether or not it's a later version or not, when it gets into the prophetic side where it says the son of man, I like how that lines up. Uh, I hope it's not you know, a later addition to it. Are but. they malice or are they, they malintended or good intended? That's like kind of the difference between the, like you could, it's hard to tell, like, you know. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the Gnostics, they, they don't dismiss Jesus. They just de-deify him down to a mortal prophet and, and a good teacher, probably who was incarnated by one of the, you know, as, as, as an avatar, one right. of the ones sent on the way to help humans evolve into godhood. So they like to keep him in the mix. They just don't want him uh, to be at a deity status. And that's why you're going to see a continual movement as we move closer to the end time in the universal religion is Paul's going to be declared a heretic. Because he has to be, because they well, they will they will use him as the sort of scapegoat to say that he raised in his books God uh, Jesus to a godlike status, and that's not what happened to him. I'm seeing that happen a lot lately. It's interesting you mentioned that. That's yeah. I think some of our original talks actually on this podcast were around that topic. So very interesting. Just to summarize <laughs> real quick, so you think uh, Enoch, son of Cain, sort of led to the later editions of Enoch, Enoch 2 and 3, etc., and Enoch 1 from the son of Jared slash Seth, 
and that being more close yeah. to canon and yeah. relating to scripture. Great. Yeah. That's totally what I thought too. So it's good to hear you um, validify yeah. that. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, because you know, when you get into those other ones, I mean, you've got things going on there where they're naming gods like Zeus. Yeah. And do you know the <laughs> historicity, like the difference in the historicity between yeah. Enoch one and then the later yeah. Enochs? Uh, all of the later Enochs are uh, younger books. Okay. But they're based on sort of manuscripts being passed down is sort of how they get, how people get there to recognizing it, that it's based on something that's much older. So, um, and then, you know, in, in, in third Enoch, you have um, Enoch being raised to the son of God or angelic like status through his wisdom through his knowledge turns to megatron metatron metatron yeah. metatron yeah and metatron <laughs> yeah. is the one that people refer to in the development of ai as this demonic sort of essence who's communicating with them to provide them guidance and knowledge you yeah, can't make right. this yeah. stuff up <laughs> and that's crazy because if you want to read something crazy just go read enoch like you don't have to make anything up like you can yeah. go read that and have your mind blown yeah completely blown out of the water i was just like what and then you read the the ones that are made for propaganda to actually push like very bad things like the 62 keys of enoch that have like this crazy crazy stuff in it and then you start to realize that none of this is old and my uh grandpa was right ain't nothing new under the sun and that this technology is super old as well yeah we're just catching up to that Technology. It's interesting you mentioned the AI with Metatron, and I'm just thinking mm-hmm. of Transformers. The like bad Megatron. guy was called Megatron, yeah. but then, but then now you have Tesla with Elon Musk coming out with Optimus, right? Which yeah. is supposedly the good Transformer. Is that yeah. right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, in in typical, was from the 80s too. In typical yeah. dualism in in polytheism, you have the macro, where you have let's say God against Satan. Um, but at the micro level within the religion, you have like black magic and white magic. You have good Nephilim, you have bad Nephilim. Um, so you have that dualism that's always perpetually at play within it as well. And so it would make sense that they would create that within that sort of dualism is just part of their, their belief system. Meta is also the word that, um, you know, Facebook is using for their company now. And that the metaverses, which is interdimensional, is all part of that whole um, type of uh, allegory and words that they like to use to represent who they actually are. You know, the Facebook uh, original logo, I mean, it's based off of the Tubal-Cain logo, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) they just have to advertise their belief system. Right. Did you have a question, Joshua? Joshua? Go for it, man. You may be muted still. Oh, okay, cool. Thanks. So speaking of microscopic, uh, I would like to ask about DNA and and germs and uh, bloodlines, things like that. Um, I wasn't expecting the the question to balloon up that big, but, but, uh, some of these names that I've run across like Aster 
DuPont, Freeman, Rockefeller, Rothschild, Kennedy, Onassis, Russell, Reynolds, Bundy, Collins, Van Dunn, or called like the Illuminati bloodlines or whatever. So I was curious, are there people today that you think are like the descendants of these fallen angels, perhaps? And are the 13 or 12 or whatever that exist today all that's left of maybe a larger number? Because I kind of mm. have a theory that maybe diseases and influenza and things like that could actually be angel DNA. Um, because oftentimes whenever Yahweh would tell his people to go conquer a, a people, they weren't supposed to take anything or touch yeah. anything. And I often wondered, is it because like, did they have disease vectors? Was there angel DNA on that? Did it, and it would, and if it got into their bloodline, then they would be tainted. Right. Cause that's what yeah. viruses do. Yeah. So I was wondering if maybe you could, uh, <laughs> maybe even talk about the dragon Messiah and how it relates to these families. And if, yeah. if, maybe what we're seeing right now with yeah. all these pandemic things, could this all relate to some type of weird war? Like is a spiritual war going on at the microscopic level, <laughs> you know, thank you. Well, yeah, I think it goes all the way down to that quantum level. I think uh, they have the angelic technology has the ability to work interdimensionally and at the quantum level. And the best place to uh, pervert things or corrupt things, just as the whole earth was corrupted before the flood, that's the Hebrew word shakath, uh, means to ruin, decay, pervert, words like that. That means the DNA of humans was corrupted. The DNA of animals were corrupted. The plant genome was corrupted. They had the ability to work at that level, and they do today, and we will soon have that as we get closer to that technology. And that the reason why God, I think, called the animals to the ark is because he knew the ones that weren't corrupted. And he took the best of each kind or species to repopulate the earth based on that. So when you have these polytheist stories like the unicorn, these joyful little funny little uh, cuddly little horses with one horn who were playing and missed the ark, they weren't, They didn't get missed. They weren't called. And that these weren't cuddly little unicorns. These were monster chimera type of beasts that the giants uh rode and and rode into battle with they were the the ultimate um warrior uh being and it could gore things like crazy with the size of this horn that it had so i think that they worked at that level they continue to work at that level i think a lot of the things in this world that they completely control just as you know satan runs this world is the prince of this world um that uh, we have a lot of things within this earth that is designed to make our lives miserable because that's what they like to do to, to humankind that they've been trying to destroy to justify their rebellion since the creation of the Adamites. Fortunately, we're the resolution to the angelic rebellion, 
and why we have to go through this and get through to the end time. But yeah, I think they have the ability to do that. And I think we're going to see that ability as a development for, without getting too far down this stream and get back to the bloodline question. Um, when we get the mark of the beast, you're going to see that whole level of technology uh, combined with AI, quantum computing, multi-dimensional, and a whole bunch of other technologies like digital currency and stuff like that. But the important thing here is that they want to get access to something they call the divine essence. Uh, and it is the counterfeit uh, Holy Spirit aspect. It is the philosophy, the love of Sophia. Sophia is the goddess of wisdom, of all knowledge. And that this Atma particle that they call it in the Vedas and the Upanishads or the Atman particle has this knowledge that communicates uh, and it's invisible, which is why they're still searching for it as opposed to a particle you can measure. And it merges with that particle and then sends that information instantaneously through all dimensions instantaneously through quantum entanglement. They need, they're going to pull this in as part of the implant system that's going to provide you with infinite knowledge and uh, immortality in the physical world, and that it is a presence that also comes in with you, which is like the Holy Spirit and another counterfeiting aspect, which is why the mark comes with such consequences. So they have that ability, and they're trying to catch us up to this technology that they had before the flood, so it can be like the days of Noah, because nothing is new under the sun. And so I'll move back to the other parts. Part of the question um, is, is the families. So the Illuminati families, well, these are pseudo blue bloods as we, as the names, except for the Rothschilds uh, would have been listed uh, for the most part with the names put out. What I mean by that is, is that these are very weak bloodlines are trying to intermarry through generations to become more ennobled and more pure and are permitted that opportunity for doing the will of the more pure uh, bloodlines and by intermarrying with with uh, offspring of more pure bloodlines. So if you look at the Thelemic tree, as they like to call it, you have Freemasonry at the bottom. You have uh, Illuminati at the second trunk a level. On the third trunk level is the Rosicrucians. And then you have the Committee of 300 Families. Then you have the Council of 33 Families and the 13 Families. And that's the Western sort of organization. And then you have all these branch organizations that sort of around the tree branch into it. It's the best way to understand it. And it's their terminology is the Thelemic tree. Um, and they take that from the word will out of Greek in the New Testament for God's will. Um, and they usurp it for their own meaning. And the Thelemic tree is like the evergreen tree, the world tree, and the genealogical tree uh, as being more of a elm tree uh, as opposed to the cedar of edom or you could also even imagine the uh the genealogical tree as an oak tree but it, in their religions it's more of an ash uh, more of an elm tree because it's it's their sort of holy tree although oak was popular amongst the tuatha de Danan, so mm -hmm. uh, and and they're kind of conflated terms and as you take that back to hebrew in the old testament as well but anyways as as okay. i talk about that those roots go down to hades that's where the source of the power comes from and the bloodlines come from so genealogical tree bloodline from the organizations, from the roots that go into Hades, which is it is in the earth in another dimension, which is the 
place and the location and the heaven heavenly uh, place of heaven for the polytheist gods, for the pantheon of gods, where the, also is where the abyss is located. So as we look at all of that, uh, we understand Illuminati is kind of low down. So mm-hmm. it's the other families as you move up. So in the royal bloodlines of from the ancient Masons, uh, they populate the top levels. And they do trace their genealogies back to a specific Raphaim or Nephilim or both, one before the flood, one after the flood, based on their belief system, and to specific angels. And they keep those genealogies because based on that purity and what they call a scion, or grafting in of ennobled branches is where they're going to where they're going to fit in that overall hierarchy. Now, do I necessarily believe that those genealogies are true? I don't know, um, but that's not important. They believe it, and what they do with that belief is important. And so, let's take Prince Charles. Oh, I'm sorry, King Charles the Third. I'm still getting used to that. Um, All right. He uh, takes his genealogy in several different directions, and they're originally Hanovers coming out of uh, England before they changed their name to Windsor and in, in, in World War One for obvious reasons. They wanted to associate <laughs> with the Germans. Um, but he also says, and I think it comes through the Hanover uh, genealogy, as, as he's noted, is that he's a descendant of Vlad the Impaler, who Dracula is based on. And you can Google it, and there's several articles on it. And Vlad the Impaler was your typical um, royal bloodline noble uh, Scythian, noble Tuatha de Danan. He had red hair, pale skin, hazel eyes. He was educated in the Mystery School of Solomon in Vienna. He had a... Uh, uh, a light disorder. So he was a knight operating Upier, just as Upier is rooted back into uh, Scythian as uh, as Uber and Oberon and words like that means overlord. And Upier was also a, a night witch, a night vampire. So you have this amalgamation of the Dracula vampire modern tale, understanding Dracula means son of a dragon. And a dragon in Greek means a watcher. Uh, Again, you can't make this stuff up. It's just all there if you dig into the imagery. Now, Vlad the Impaler, he is this individual of very high noble bloodlines who was taken into the, you guessed it, Ordo Draconis, or the Sarkhani Ron, to help put more of their bloodlines back on the thrones of Europe because they felt they were being pushed back by less pure bloodlines, to put it nicely. And he also takes his genealogies back to the uh, Agrithi tribe of the Scythians, which is was created originally by Hercules, um, and he, Hercules is the son of Zeus. So, do they keep these genealogies? Yes. Are they true? I don't know. They say they are. They believe it with all of their heart. And they are looking to present through the Western bloodlines. And this organizational structure I talked about is just the West. You can imagine that there was bloodlines all over the world. So as an example of the rivalry there, it's the Western 
European bloodlines who created what they, something that they called social masonry, which is the beginnings of communism. And so they funded Trotsky and Lenin, and then they launched communism on a, a more pure bloodline in Russia. Mm-hmm. And they and they took out the uh, the Putyanin bloodline, uh, which is the bloodline out of Kiev and the original Scythians uh, that set up their dynasty in Kiev and then, then set up a branch of op- uh, uh, empire through Moscow, whom the Romanovs as a junior offshoot bloodline are uh, the junior branch of the Putyanin. So they took that bloodline out as a rival. They also sent communi- uh, uh, social masonry into Germany to take out the Kaisers. Then they sent communism into uh, China to take out the, the Li and the Xi bloodlines of the Xia dynasty that comes from the dragon kings and dragon creator gods. And we actually have a Xi back on the bloodline uh, list in China today. Who she ZI or XI comes from the Western Shah dynasty bloodline, and he's trying to rebuild his empire just as Putin takes his genealogy back to his grandfather in about 1850, where Putin's name comes out of nowhere. There is no name of Putin before that, from before his grandfather. And that and that his grandfather lived in Kiev. And Kiev was the home of the Putyanins, the Rurkuds dynasty that we talked about. And that if you had a child out of wedlock, they would get money and they would get part of the name, but they wouldn't be part of the sort of inner circle. So mm-hmm. Putyanin is thought to be, and there's articles and I've got documents on this if people want uh, a reference as to where, where to look at it. This was the genealogy and the connection back to the Putyanin dynasty that was posted in Russian newspapers as Putin was coming to power as sort of his pedigree. So he wants Kiev back as part of this new empire and it's this holy city. So yes, there will be other bloodlines that 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 rise up around the world, uh, whether it's the uh, Ingaroka out of uh, South America for the bloodlines of the Incas. I won't go through all the bloodlines of the world, but you get what I'm talking about here. Now, in the West, you have the uh, King of Jerusalem title that the current King of Spain has, and that's uh, King Philippe Bourbon, and he uh, got it from his uh, father, who inherited it from the Habsburgs, uh, the Habsburg-Lorraine dynasty, and the King of Jerusalem title passed on to the Habsburgs from the Lorraine kings, uh, which was home of de Bouillon, de Payon, and Anjou, which were founders of the Knights Templar, you know, who were descendants of the Mer- Merovingians uh, of Dagobert. And so in 1118, they crowned their first king of Jerusalem to Baldwin II Anjou in a small priory on the Rock of Zion. And that title went with them throughout the ages. and. As the rivalries grew, it split into three. So you've got three rivals to the King of Jerusalem title. You have the the Anjou of Naples. You have the uh, uh, Bourbon through intermarriage of the, and they're technically Anjou, um, who has the title today. And then von Habsburg of the Habsburg Lorraine dynasty also has a claim for it. But the official title uh, that's recognized is 
the uh, the king uh, of Spain, uh, King Philippe. Juan Carlos was who had it before that. That was his father. So how they get that title with that right is that they ennoble these bloodlines in. They scion, they graft them in because it makes them greater within their culture. So not only do they have from the Merovingians bloodlines that go back to Nephilim and Raphaim, but they also have bloodlines grafted in from David. They also, through the Merovingians, they also have bloodlines grafted in through King Saul. And they also have, allegedly, as in the Da Vinci Code, I don't believe this part of it for sure, but they say they have it, and they have the proof they'll come out with it at some point in time, that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He survived to have to marry Mary Magdalene, and through Josephus, the third son, the bloodline continued, and Joseph of Amarathea took that bloodline over to Glastonbury, where it married into the Celtic dynasties and the Camelot dynasty. And then with uh, a lady, a daughter of that bloodline uh, named Ergen, intermarried with Aminabad of the Merovingian dynasty to graft that bloodline into the Merovingians that has passed on to the Anjou, who claimed the King of Jerusalem title. Now, in the book of Joshua, the Benjamites were awarded Jerusalem. So that's why that Benjamite bloodline is important and how they make their claim for the King of Jerusalem. And this is the king and the title that they want to crown their Messiah with or dragon Messiah with in the temple at the time of the abomination as 2 Thessalonians 2, 4 describes, right? So, and will be rightfully in their eyes crowned the king of Jerusalem. So those are three rivals uh, for a genealogically based Nephilim, Raphaim, offspring of the gods, Antichrist figure that are trying to present, get in a position to become Antichrist. We also have the Windsor family that is also part of that whole mix and will have, you know, try and make their play. What we're told within the Black nobility, Rex Deus, is that they keep three Antichrist figures prepared, initiated from childhood, ready all the time. But there will be many Antichrists, and there will be Antichrists coming from around the world. So you have like Lord Maitreya that comes out of the Hindu um, religion and expectation, and he might be called by another name that people would know as the new Buddha or the Christ consciousness. Uh, you also have the Makti of both the Sunni and the Shia. They claim them that they're different, uh, but they are each are expecting this. Uh, there is a Messiah expectation amongst all the polytheist religions around the world. So when Jesus said there will be many Antichrists, and the epistles of John underline that, and I always put everything around what Jesus said in terms of anything, but particularly prophecy, not vice versa, things really start to make some sense that we have to be careful as to which people that we're claiming to be antichrists. You know, every president that seems to come along gets to be accused of as being an antichrist. Well, all that does is lose us credibility. And they're just, they're not even legitimate antichrist individuals. But these individuals are raised to a high level of degrees and from childhood through the royal inner circles of, of, of mysticism, and they all have immense level and higher intellect is what they like to say. Now, whether that's true or not, 
I don't know, but that's what they claim. But what we do know is, is they are all rivals and that there can only be one family that's going to run that dynasty when it comes about. And where it differs from Christianity, its version of it is, is how long that dynasty runs for. Is it a thousand years? And then into attorney on the polytheist side, or is it three and a half years? Well, I vote for the three and a half years, but I'm biased. Exactly. Yeah. I, uh, Thank you for that. Yeah. Geez, man. <laughs> we'll have to re-listen to this a few times to <laughs> sort all that out of my head. Um, what I had a few questions uh, 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 from just a few things that you said. One, it was the elm tree. Uh, that makes sense because it has L in the name of the tree. Uh, Lord is right in the name. Um, and then the other thing was the blue bloods. Uh, do you think that's just, does that mean blue blood or does that just mean Caucasian because we see the blood running through the veins as blue? Yeah, I've, I've struggled with that last part of it. Is it? that the you know was was at some time the original blood blue as the offspring of the uh, of the gods i mean we certainly get blue blood in a lot of fantasy and science fiction um i don't know what i do know is that there's a possibility that that might be the case because you know for example the windsors have oh negative blood and RH negative is thought to be the bloodline in 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 a lot of circles of as a sign as the genealogy and the traits coming down from the Nephilim and the gods. So people say the argument against that is is that you can't add something that's a negative. So if it's missing the D antigen, how does that get added into the human bloodline that are positive? Well, it's not that it's the genes it's the dna and that's what produces the blood types and starts to answer the questions of how rh negative kind of skips so they call that the fairy gene they call that the elven gene they call that the gene of isis they call that um the lb gens the julia gens of the italian black nobility is a specific gene back to specific patriarchs that would pass that on to produce the blood type and so I think that you have this possibility once you understand that and then add into a second part that it might be possible. So I mentioned the Nephilim and Raphaim and look at them as a little different. Um, and in my new book, I, I cover this off in detail because I didn't want to sort of confuse people in, in, in the first book because there's so much going on in the mm-hmm. first book to begin with. Nephilim are antediluvian giants. Perhaps some survived in, but I fall more into my biases of second incursion, but I'm open to other ways. But that's I think that fits the Bible best as second incursion. Raphaim is the most common year word used to describe giants in the New Testament. So Nephilim shows up in Genesis 6-4, where the giants are created, where it says giant, that's the word nephil, the I am male, plural. And then two other times only, and that's in Numbers 13.33, where it says the Anakim are giants, Nephilim. That's the embellished part of the report of the scouts in the time of the uh, Exodus. 
uh, whereas the Anakim and the accurate part aren't called giants, they're just called Anakim in the part that Joshua gives us. But in Deuteronomy 2, we're told the Anakim are giants. But that word doesn't go back to Nephil, it goes back to Raphaim. So Raphaim is actually used either as Raphaim twice in Genesis 14 for the war of giants as a tribe, and part of the giant tribes in Genesis 15 when Abraham is being awarded the land between the Nile and the Euphrates. The other time you see giant, except for those three times for Nephilim, the word giant is going to go back 20, 23 other times to uh, the word Rapha and the male plural is Raphaim. Giant does show up once in the book of Joshua as a giant, or book of Job as a giant, but that goes back to Gibor or Gibberim, just as the Gibberim were what giants were called. And you can debate whether that's an actual giant or just a, a warrior. But so Raphaim are post diluvian uh giants and so when you get into let's say the ugaritic text for example you have uh the rapiu and the rapium and these are the offspring of uh of baal and ashtaroth post-diluvian offspring gods as opposed to parent gods like el that lived before the flood the implication being is gods like anu father of anki and anli Kronos, father of Zeus, El, father of Baal, those parent gods went to the abyss at the time of the flood for the crimes that they committed, being impassioned and doing the worst of things. But as, as an army, you would have angels move up in rank when those ones are eliminated. So Baal takes over, in this case, as part of the... Uh, Balim, and that they are doing rituals to Baal and Ashtaroth to come back and reproduce more giants. Mm -hmm. They're fertility issues, not for the land, but there's an issue with the Raphaim. They're different than uh, the giants before the flood. And the Raphaim in the Ugaritic texts are giant warriors. They are kings. They are um, healers. They could heal themselves and heal other people they had this special power and uh, they are also the spirits the raphaim they're classified in three different ways just as you have 7495 7496 7497 and here we're all rafa describing the three aspects of the raphaim 7497 is the one is the giant 7496 is the evil spirits the disembodied spirits 7495 is the healing aspect and 7495 is is the root word now, you have this thank city. You. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, thank you for that. Okay. Uh, and I'm just beginning. Um, so, because <laughs> this is really sort of interesting information that's going to come out now. So, Ugarit is, is the city uh, that's in the northern part of the land of the covenant, um, just inwards from Tyr. And it's the city where this council of the Datanu is, uh, and other tribes that are named of these giants. Danu. And the Datanu would be another name for the tribe of Anu or the Tuatha de Danet. Now, Ug in Ugarit is the Semitic word that's the root for Og. So Og would be, as we transliterate that, as O-W-G, but it goes back to a word meaning round or stout or stocky, which is UWG and eliminate the silent W on that, UG, Ug or Og. So this is Kiriath Ug, city of Og. And then Arit is the word for 
terrible one as it shows up in the King James Version Bible. So this is the city of King Og, the terrible one. The terrible one, the terrible ones are the ones recorded in like Ezekiel 32 and Isaiah 25 are the best examples or other examples. These are a branch of the terrible ones that are strong and powerful giants. And Ezekiel 32, they're the ones who do terrible things that uh, were slain on the earth and were sent to the abyss, prison, into the sides of the abyss, uh, who are speaking to Pharaoh in this dual prophecy that is being outlaid. Wow. These are these are the terrible giants, just as King Hababa is the terrible one of the cedar forest in the in the um epic of Gilgamesh. It's a sort of a common term that they were doing horrible things to, to humankind because that's what they're created for. And so this is as you get into the definition of the terrible ones, Erit or the Eritim, they're called powerful, strong warriors, all of these words, but then you get this really juicy couple of pieces of information that they're called infertile and childless. So the Raphaim, in the definition in Hebrew, they have a fertility issue, which is why they're doing these fertility rituals in the Ugaritic texts. So for them to survive, they have to intermarry with humans after the flood, whereas they didn't have to do that before the flood. So as they do that, their bloodlines become diluted and more human over time. Otherwise, they get blood diseases, you know, like Habsburg jaw disease or yeah. hemophiliac <laughs> disease, things like that. And you know, within four generations, they actually set up uh, some sort of rules around it. You can't sort of intermarry within that tight of a circle of your family, but you would still have to be pooling in lesser pure bloodlines to keep renewing it. And as they did that, they lose their giant status, they lose their serpentine-type looks, uh, and who knows, maybe their blood starts to change to more of the red color because there's more human DNA coming in, and that um, if you want to see sort of an example of dilution, Google or go see a King Tut museum and look for the Akhenaten uh, bust or statues and you look at that and you see a serpent you see this long protruding chin these high cheekbones these large wraparound eyes and they're they would glow and light up a complete room they were called the shining ones the giants both before and after the flood and they have these long elongated skulls and they're either depicted with these huge hats to cover it or and when they're not they have these grossly big heads these were serpentine beings and Akhenaten has all of that look over a thousand years after the flood so as they go further on you get more and more dilution as as you get through and they become more like us Aaron Akhenaten is Aaron <clears throat> um and was, was okay go ahead uh, what I was referring to about the blue bloods is that you can see like the veins in, in that Caucasian person, whereas if you have a melanated person, you wouldn't be able yep. to see the veins at all. So if, if, uh, if melanated people were to come in contact with white people, Caucasian people, they would see their blood as being blue as the as the color of it going through the skin, not necessarily actually point. having blue blood, but just visually yep. having blue blood. 
Yep, definitely another possibility. And, uh, you know, and it's it's sort of a double down on that possibility with the understanding that the Giants had very pale skin for the most part. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it doesn't matter whether or not they're the dark-haired ones that probably come from the cherubim. They were pale-skinned as well. But the main variety were blonde-haired, blue-eyed, red-haired, hazel-eyed, both with pale skin. So you get um, a couple of interesting examples of that. You know, out of polytheism, for example, the Atlanteans were called or described in in that way. Scythians are described in that way. But biblically, we get the Horim, who are going to intermarry with the descendants of of Esau and create, you know, the Aleph or Elven dynasty, as they like to call it, um, with the Dukes of Edom. They have pale skin, as they're described. Um, As you take their meanings back with Horim, it has several different words and pale, white bread, all sorts of meanings like that, and red hair. And the... Anakim, who we talked about, they were described on reliefs, just as Horim were described on reliefs and things elsewhere. Uh, but the Anakim were shown as having blonde hair and blue eyes. And Amorites are shown the same way. And Amorites are likely the hybrid offspring of the of the Anakim. So if you get into Genesis 10, you have the Canaanites who are living in the land of the covenant of the covenant land. They migrate to where the Aboriginal Raphaim tribes were, were living and they intermarry with them because the Raphaim need to survive. They need to intermarry to, to continue. And so you have nine of the 12 Canaanite tribes who are patriarchless. So you have the Amorites, the Jebusites, all of those nine. I won't go through all of them. They don't have a specific patriarch. And these are Raphaim patriarchs. That's why they're not listed. They're the only of the 70 listed. There's only nine that don't have a patriarch. Now, do we get an example somewhere else that sort of smoking gun that there's a patriarch for a tribe that's not in the table of nations. Yes, we get the Anakim again. The father of the Anakim in the book of Joshua is Arba. And the city of Hebron was called Kiriath Arba uh, before it was changed to Hebron. So Arba is the patriarch, as he's called in the book of Joshua of the Anakim, and he's not in the table of nations. I would submit Rapha also is a patriarch of the Raphaim, and he's not in the table of nations. None of the Avim patriarchs, none of the Zamzuzim, any of those tribes have patriarchs. Uh, um, yeah, so what you're saying is that these angels, these fallen angels, uh, are usually depicted as having blonde hair, blue eyes, or red hair, green eyes, and pale skin, and that they're coming nope, in. giants. Okay, so they're giants. They're not angels. They're not fallen angels. They're giants. They're, this is uh, all that products was of describing Nephilim. giants and those. Is, yeah, the Nephilim and the Raphaim have what had those descriptions that I provided. Okay, but okay, so separate. So that's products of Nephilim, not of angels. Yeah. Now, now they would receive a lot of their DNA from the angels. And a human female. So one would attribute a lot of that, those types of features to 
the Godfathers, but I just wanted to make sure people understood what I was describing right. is what the giants looked like. No, that's what I was going for, just the clarification of that. Thank you. Go yep. ahead. Uh, no, man. Yeah, well, first of all, I love all the points you guys are bringing up about the seeing the blue veins, you know, versus not being able to. One thing that just came to my mind, though, is a lot of these ancient sort of um, entities like Shiva or Osiris, they're often depicted as blue beings, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I wonder if blue blood was more referring to, you know, like people who came from that lineage, perhaps not necessarily that they had blue blood, but they came from blue beings. Um, just another random theory that came to mind. The jinn, right, are often depicted as that color. Yep. yep. The smirk, yes. the that makes perfect sense as well. Yep. So there, there's an association of blue there. It's just a matter of what that, comp you know, what all it represents. Right. Joshua, did you have Joshua. something else? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so um, you mentioned King Charles earlier. Mm -hmm. So Wales is depicted with the red dragon. Yeah. So do you think that he's, I mean, as terrible candidate as he might seem to be, do you think that that's kind of like one of their potential candidates sure. for this? Absolutely. And could this also explain why you mentioned the, the angel DNA? Could this yep. be why the royals sometimes look like serpents or dragons is because they literally <laughs> do have some type of uh, pedigree that goes all that way back? Yeah, I, I think there's there's something to that. Well, you know, how pure it is, I mean, it's hard to know over this length of period of time, but they they certainly believe that. So, yeah, I think I think uh, King Charles or, or his son, William, are certainly um, candidates for that. Um, and we don't know who it's going to be. Um, and they all want that position. So it's interesting about the Red Dragon of, of Wales and the Prince of Wales. Um, and the Red Dragon shows up uh, as the as this end time empire, and as a, also sponsored by Satan, as it's depicted in Revelation twelve as the Red Dragon, this fiery dragon. Um, now a lot of people think that's Satan, but that description is as much as act, you know, not as much. It's identical to the description of the end time empire that comes out of the sea in revelation 13 and revelation 17 but we also understand the power is given to it by the dragons so um we're going to see that type of representation and linkage you know coming down the road somehow some way so i think that's that's uh, certainly part of it as well and uh, but yeah never rule out uh, uh the 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 windsor hanover bloodline and you know they hold you know, first level positions as crossover royal Masonic orders with the uh, order of the Golden Fleece that the Anjou control. Um, and uh, if people aren't familiar with what the Golden Fleece is, it's Greek mythology. But yes. the meaning of it is, is this is the clothing uh, that was made out of Golden Fleece for the gods and the demigods to wear. So to help protect the the bodies in the physical world from being corrupted or decay or growing old. And so everything in their orders is a specific meaning. You know, the uh the uh, the Stuarts uh come out of the the Bruce line um and a whole bunch of other scioning bloodlines uh that include the St. Clair's 
uh, out of uh, Normandy, which was the Rollo bloodline um, and the Viking bloodline that goes back to, to Odin and Thor. And so what's interesting about that, they have a royal order as well. They all have royal orders, just as the royal order of Russia was the order of Vladimir, just as you have Vladimir Putin and Vlad the Impaler was a kingly patronymic kingship title. Um, and Vladimir had this order of giants. <laughs> and that's Vladimir the Great that was helping make this new dynasty that was set up in Moscow. And again, they all have sort of legends that sort of go back to that. But the name of the Norse one was the Knights of the Seraphim. I mean, you couldn't get more yes. in your face. You can Google it. Just Google Knights of the Seraphim. It's the royal uh, Masonic order of the Swedish bloodline kings. Sarah, Sarah, queen. Crazy. Sarah's queen, Seraphim. I, I think that has to do a lot with like uh, like Tribe of Dan too, uh, worshiping uh, the goddess figure, which is where they get their name, uh, uh, Dan, Daniel, right? Um so uh, that's why I was asking so hard about like the idea of the goddess mating with human men, because I think maybe like, I wonder if that's the line that came from, from that, like the, the tribe of Dan line, because they, they are seemingly outside of the realm of the rest of the Israelites because they defected, but they're also become the judges, the ones that are to judge all the other Israelites. So it's very interesting that they have so, some type of separatism to, towards them. Uh, but they also uh, are act like and, fallen angels by mating with everybody else because uh, you know the the priestly bloodline uh, um, doesn't like the fact that they're mating outside of the bloodline, so they get kicked out. So uh, there's just a connection there that's very interesting. Um, yeah, the tribe of Dan is a interesting subject for sure. You know, and they moved to live in the um, Bashan Mount Hermon region. Right. And yeah. they, uh, they were, yeah. And they Which were very the active. Yeah. The line of Bashan. Yeah. So in, and you have the unicorn mixed in through the King James version Bible all throughout Bashan and Mount Hermon and associated and unicorn doesn't mean um, a one horned uh, horse in Hebrew. It's a, it's a, it's a mighty bull or an ox. So it's the unicorn dynasty of the Stuarts who sponsored the King James Version Bible, putting their mythos into the Bible. Uh, they should have Jesus. just translated it as as uh, as a wild ox. Um, but anyways, um, yeah. So the tribe of Dan is also uh, the one that was very heavily into polytheism in many many accounts in the Bible right. and held accountable kind of for that and. They may have something to do with the end time Babel religion as well, in terms of how they help deceive the you know the people of Judah, the visible southern kingdom, as we see today, and perhaps maybe what they do to um, the lost tribes of Israel and when they awaken in in the last seven years. But they're also not part of, which I think is telling the hundred and forty four thousand, right? Which is what you were talking about earlier with those those uh, those. Uh, giant nations that are kind of left out the 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 patriarchs that are left out of the yeah. of the thing. So that's I, I, I'm yeah. thinking that it maybe come from them. Uh, so we were talking about blue earlier, and blue has another interesting connection to the Mayans and how they would uh, put the blue paint all over their body, and yeah. also the picked the picks uh, would uh, tattoo themselves with blue ink. Uh, yes, yeah. and uh, 
Scott Walter, who did that show, America Unearthed, connected that blue dye to a place in uh, Atlanta or in Georgia um, near Atlanta. And uh, seemingly, so we often talk about the Atlanteans as maybe being part of the Americas and stuff like that, too. So it's very interesting that there's a, a connection with this blue dye and blue blood and uh, these these other groups of people. Um that's that's all i had to say on that sorry and death and death yeah well because you, death, you were talking about death. the yep. dog-headed people earlier too which is also yep. a representation of the tribe of dan and anubis and um um uh hermes or uh, toth and uh the hermetic principles and the duot uh i think it was called like the duot de uh tunin or something yep. like that which is also yep. another place where the Chwatha de Danan take their name uh, because yep. they were uh, underworld. They were going underground. Um, yes. So there's many connections. A lot of things layered in. And the tribe of Anu is also mixed in there. Mm -hmm. That's a Danu. Chwatha Danu. A and yeah. Serious B. Yeah. Mm. Sorry. Go ahead, no man. Yeah, I just wanted to weave real quick on what Joshua was saying about uh, whales because I found that interesting and maybe Gary can provide some context on this, but isn't the word whale translated in Hebrew to tanin, which can mm -hmm. also mean dragon, serpent, sea monster. Yep. yep. Yeah. So that was just yeah. an interesting weave I wanted to add yeah. there. The, and, and, you know, I don't believe that that's a coincidence. I mean, I just don't, right. especially with the red dragon um, and the beast empires and, you know, you have this multi-headed uh, hydra uh, concept of the beast empires, and Leviathan um, is uh, is is a beast of the sea, and uh, is also was multi-headed. Um, it's just too many coincidences there, and they they just do. Um, polytheism does an extraordinary job of weaving their belief system through so many different things and so many different angles that the whole language that mm -hmm. they speak in is part of their worship and ritual. It's just sort of embedded into it. Unfortunately, we have to swim in that sea of imagery and languages all the time, right? And yeah. we don't even know we're breathing and drinking that stuff in all the time. Um, but, we, you know, it is it is just sort of with us. And, you know, I also like the uh, connection to the... Uh, to the uh warriors of the aztec warriors and uh the atlantean connection so you have the atlantic connection where that was the world government of the antediluvian age it had 10 demigod kings from poseidon and um clido or yeah clido. i just want to say like for people that don't think that that's possible um to think that atlanta was the world government it, i mean i'm sorry tomato tomato whatever um it like 1177 that book bc 1177 by eric klein uh definitely like maps out how there was world trade and world globalism before yeah. the world flood you know yeah. um and also uh he points out the the three-tiered shipwrecks that happened and like how they had 
all of the blue ingots on there and where they came from and the mountain ranges they come from, which is astounding because blue wasn't really a color then. So I just wanted to weave that in. I think that's mm-hmm. really cool. Yep. Especially dealing with the Raphaim. I mean, if it if they're trying to uh, make something come out of the water, like the easiest way to do would like put sacred items in like in in ingangas almost and ingots and just like have that oxide just stuck in there. They saw the oxygen in there. So from way back when. So I, I just think that that's insane. When we were talking about the first city, right? And that was, who was it? Was it the Enoch of Cain or of Jared and Seth's Cain. line? Cain. That was the Cain. Of Cain. So that was the first city, right? Uh, and so we almost see, do you have any opinion on that, Gary, of like, do you think the model of like the city is sort of the the wrong way to go about life in, in a manner of speaking? Like, uh, like not God's perfect yeah. plan, if that makes sense? Because it seems yeah. like a lot of um, turmoil comes around when we start crowding ourselves in these small areas. We know that that's when disease breaks out with animals, yeah. when we cram yeah. them in. And it seems like God was always telling people, like, go, like, leave, like, you know, spread out. <laughs> well, this, I mean, thing. yeah, this whole system is decentralized and flat organizational structure. And when you get this large uh, hierarchy, that's more of the human involvement. So you have the old right. style of uh, religious model of Israel, and then you have the Roman church that created all of this hierarchy, right? It was very decentralized. And just as the tribes were decentralized and they weren't even, you know, originally didn't have a centralizing king, right? They would raise, you know, if they fell away and they had people attacking, then they would, you know, God would raise up a judge and save them if they repented it. Um, So, yeah, we need to sort of, um, you know, understand that, that there is a uh, simpler sort of way of, of, of living that I think that we were designed to do. So getting back to your, your, Original comment and the word city. Um, that's the Hebrew word ayir, I W Y R, as it's transliterated into English. And uh, it also is the same word for watcher. Mm. <laughs> and uh, so, <laughs> city of watchers, um, because you would guard, you would build forces as you start to do things. And Watcher shows up in the Bible four times in the book of Daniel, all in chapter four, and it's Ayer, and it goes back to another Hebrew word spelled similarly, only with a U, and it means to be awake or, or watchful. And so that's the root word for the watchers, as it's talked about in the book of Enoch, um, that are awake and watching around the throne of God. And uh, so... You have watchers that were living in these great cities that the uh, angels built before humans were around. Um, cities that go back into uh, a long period of time, and humans seem to have inherited some of these great cities. Not that humans didn't build some cities with the help of uh, of the gods, but we have we probably could find uh, cities that might predate the city of Hanok. Um, well, and I think we have that like with um, cities like uh, biblically cities like Jericho would be older than that. 
Um, so that sort of fits, but you have to sort of look at, you know, is, is the world 6,000 years old or is it a little bit older and how old is it? That's another rabbit hole, but, uh, getting to the point of this watcher and city, uh, aspect that we, that I started on, cause I, I can go down rabbit trails forever. So I have to try and show some discipline. Um, you have another word that is, uh, linked in with watcher or ear, and that's the Hebrew word sa'ir. And sa'ir is the Hebrew word for satyr, a degraded devil goat god. Later. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, ayir is 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 the second word of the compound word, which is an angel. Sa is the shortened version of. Uh, there's one that saw that's spelt and means hairy and shaggy, and then there's a saab. There's a couple other words, so it's a contracted, compounded word. And you get this connotation of this hairy goat uh, god, right? Satir. And that's, you know, a conjoining of two words to form, uh, you know, what angels like Azazel are, are described as, as this goat god when he was a watcher before, which would have been one of those groups that we talked about, and goats aren't in there. So they've been degraded just like... Satan was degraded to a to a lower lower status level for their for their sins, and that um, these degraded hairy goat gods um, are show up in other religions as well, like Pan or Bacchus or Cern or Cernunos, and there's a whole host of other ones. So this is there's this order of these degraded goat gods after the flood all who have this interesting sexual bias that they like to continually partake in uh that again is is no coincidence and then you get these same types of terms that are associated with uh antichrist as you take some of those words back that describe antichrist in daniel 8 um that will be be rising up and there was oh there's one other connection back to the goat uh, you have on the day of atonement the second goat that's sacrificed called the scapegoat for some unknown reason we're not provided a reason the first one is for the sins of israel we don't know what the other one is probably the sins of the world or the sins of the fallen angels that word in hebrew is scapegoat and azazel is described as the scapegoat what all the sins of the antediluvian world were set on in the book of enoch so i don't think that's a coincidence either right one last thing i'll add and then i want to hear what uh, dan and joshua have to say but i also find it interesting as we're talking about cities one of the cities that stands out to me from my readings is the city of AI, which is a Canaanite city. Aye, um, yeah. So that's just random uh, coincidence that we're still seeing a, a influx of AI in our cities. Yeah. Well, and they were cities of light in their belief system, cities of knowledge, uh, cities on yeah. a hill, yeah. shining cities on a hill. Oh, she. So, so you, you move over to... Uh, King King Arthur and the Grail stories, you have Camelot, the shining city of Lot. Sodom oh, was man. a shining city, fortress, part of a Pentapolis, part of fortress cities that was destroyed, and it was on a hill, and it was a home, according to Gnostics, of great knowledge and a great civilization, shining city on the hill that was destroyed. 
When people call Washington the shining city, you should not think that that's a compliment. Right. Um, so I realize that we're at the end of our, 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 our two hours right here. Uh, but, um, I'm having a lot of fun and I know everybody still has more questions. Gary, do you mind sticking around for us to ask one more question each before we, sure. before we get okay. out of here? Yep. Yep. Um, we can do that. Joshua, I know you've had your hand up for a while, so why don't you go ahead, brother, and start it off? Okay. Well, uh, since Unicorn came up, I did have a, a verse about that um, because as you guys were talking about Leviathan, it, it made me think of this too. <laughs> so uh, since the Unicorn's really a bull, um, it's this beast of the earth. And then we got Leviathan, which is the beast of the sea. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering in the story with Joshua and Rahab, which is another word for Le Leviathan, mm -hmm. is that some type of strange, uh, like an image of the marriage of the lamb and revelation in some way? I know it sounds strange, but here we got a harlot in Rahab being wed to Joshua. So uh that's leviathan and 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 uh the ox and so i just it kind of blew my mind just hearing you talk about it a few minutes ago i was like wow that's that's kind of like the marriage of the lamb <laughs> so it made me think of behemoth and leviathan and i just what is god trying to tell us with this stuff <laughs> so well, uh, well i would say that you know, I, I like how you connected those dots, and I understand that, and I've looked at that. I wouldn't quite equate it with the Supper of the Lamb. A lamb wouldn't really have a horn. But the unicorn, Antichrist, the little horn that grows up in Daniel 8 and Daniel 7 amongst the ten horns, and with Rahab, um, and with the dualistic mother-goddess religion that's coming, he would have a counterfeit Supper of the Lamb after um the uh counterfeit armageddon in joel 1 and 2 ezekiel 38 39 and in revelation 9 that's that counterfeit armageddon so he would have to have something to counterfeit the supper of the lamb that's very interesting it'll be nice to see well not nice to see but it'll be interesting to see how they try to counterfeit the wedding feast as it were yeah um joshua Thank you. Did you have any uh like one more final question because i know your hand up had been up for a while for that one so oh well i did have a verse that was kind of interesting it was in deuteronomy 33 verse 17 it says his glory is like the firstling <laughs> of his bullock and his horns are like the horns of unicorns with them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth mm -hmm. and they shall be the ten thousands of ephraim and they are the thousands of manasseh so i thought that was kind of an interesting verse to yes and it was part that. part of the king james mythos that was put in there because he looks at himself as a mighty prince a gibberine prince uh king james and or prince james and he uh, is you know, starting off on this dream of Francis Bacon, who is his closest advisor, as he was with Queen Elizabeth, to create the great commonwealth that conquered the world. And so that was purposely put in there for his to, to sort of patronize uh, King James. And so 
but the unicorn overall, I mean, it may come, you know, they may have had some vision that would come from their bloodlines as one of the rivals, but it, it is that single horn of that Antichrist coming in. So it doesn't have to be from King James. It could be from one of the other bloodlines. So, um, and unicorn is also associated with Bashan and Mount Hermon. As you get throughout, uh, you may see that you have to check some of the names. Like you got different names for Mount Hermon in the Bible. You have like Sirioin and uh, Sion and some other names. So when you see unicorn in a mountain, you may want to double check the name of that mountain because it's probably the, an alternate name for Mount Hermon. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, would Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes kind of be a, a commentary on that Commonwealth concept of? leviathan being like this government or the sea of people and the and the government's like the beast that weds the people or something like that because i've seen it depicted that way on the front of the book before it's like the government is just composed of all these small bodies of people and it's it's kind of strange you know the 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 beast that comes out of the sea in the end time is this leviathan type sea sea dragon with multiple heads uh, as leviathan is described and it's the beast kingdom and it's the beast of the sea and the beast system operates things so you've got this beast system that is you know coming together and we're seeing it so when we we talk about the term beast you have beast as antichrist you have the beast religion uh, you have the beast kings um, and the beast empires and Part of this operational beast system incorporates all of the business that Babylon will control as part of that organizational structure. So, yeah, that imagery is the whole system that they imagine getting complete control over with the beast system that's represented in the Leviathan. It's literally animal farm in Um, a sense. Remember when we read that quote from Job, it talked about Leviathan and, and the behemoth. And one of them yep. was a male and one of a female. Do you guys remember which one was? What? Yeah, the female was killed uh, in prehistory by God. Prima materia. And the uh, the male will be killed in the end time in Isaiah. So is the male the behemoth and the Leviathan is the female? No, there was oh, a, so. a male and female of each of those as well. Oh, and okay. again. The female was uh, was killed because you can't have them reproducing either one because they would devour everything in the earth. They're that big. Hmm. I was just curious to know if the the behemoth that was left was considered female or male. I guess uh, male. Okay. There we go. That's the assumption. Anyways, you don't get that because you don't get many verses on be- behemoth, but. Again, there one was the the monster of the land, and the other pair was the monsters of the sea. Right. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you, uh, yeah, thank Morgan. You. Did you guys have one final question? No, this is great. Thank you so much, Gary. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, you know, the questions Morgan. were absolutely awesome. Um, I was just. Uh, First of all, yes, thank you so much for um, coming on and talking to us because I've been very much looking forward to this. Um, I was just um, going to say one thing. I, I think I, I brought up the shipwrecks that were mentioned because um, 
that's how they discovered Australia, which then they discovered the Aboriginal people there. And uh, they speak the Arunite language. Uh, they're called uh, the Arunda. You know, it's just like you can't make this stuff up. So I just wanted to weave in on that real quick. Um, oh, and they called it New South Wales, which it's funny. So um mm. I just, uh, yeah, thank you for coming on. It was very nice to meet you, finally. I had one. one yes, last nice to one meet you. Too. Yep. Um, I have a hypothesis, I guess you could say, so you could tell me if I'm full of crap or not, which I would appreciate. But um, it talks about the Chwata De Danan as the De Dan, De Danan, or the, meaning the God people, people of God, um, seemingly that they came from one of the tribes of Israel, uh, Dan being right above uh, uh, the city of, uh, shoot, I forget what it is now, uh, where Jesus came from, right? uh, Judah, and Bethlehem being on the border of Judah and Dan. Um, is it possible that Mary uh, mated with a Dan, and that's where the the bloodline of Jesus comes from. And that's why we see the lion in the aisles uh, start to take up because seemingly the lion has to do with Judah, the lion of Judah, not necessarily with Dan, but you also see Dan take on the imagery of the lion and as being the protector of sacred places and whatnot. So I'm wondering if they're trying to protect this bloodline because they're often uh, kind of made uh, associated with Templars and masonry also down the line and then into the Jolly Roger and pirates and maritime civilization and Danites so, and all that stuff. So, yeah. uh, I would, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, a couple things I would say that certainly the tribe of Danu has a lot of associations with the gods. They predate uh, the tribe of Dan in, in the Bible, though. So, um I think there was probably a lot of sort of interaction between Dan and some of the Raphaim and the giants. Um, and I think, you know, after their diaspora, they may have, you know, moved in and married with a lot of the different types of Indo-Aryan tribes as they're known in secularly or the Tuatha de Danan. Um, but they're, they're different. They're so, uh, I'd be, be careful to conflate those too, although they may have intermarried down the line. Um, so with Mary, um, she she doesn't have sex when she has Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit creates the Oikotarian for the word to, yeah, that's what the Bible says. So um, you have to have something that's absolutely pure to be the Lamb of God. To And so God doesn't have sex uh in sort of any way um that is a polytheist analogy so to bring about his son as opposed to a rebellious angel's son he does it in a different way so he creates the soul and the body which is the oikotarian for the spirit to dwell in as opposed right. to creating a illegal counterfeit spirit so two they're similar but they're different and so i think one of the things that i you know that's interesting about the quran when it talks about the gods and what they do is is they're very very clear 
that God doesn't have a wifely partner and doesn't have sex. They're very, very clear on that. And they're talking about, and people can argue whether they're talking about the God of the Bible or not, but they say they're talking about the God of the Bible, and they say everything in the Bible is perfectly accurate and true, although they don't teach that to to their, their people. They follow the Hadiths, but that's a different rabbit hole. Uh, to, to play devil's advocate real quick on that, though, um, it, uh, it is possible uh, for them to uh, have immaculate conceptions. There's, there was whole uh, tribes of women, such as Amazonians and all kinds of other ones who practice uh, these these type of immaculate conception type birthing uh, ideas, um, and then uh, one of the uh, well, but their beliefs... immaculate conception ideas was having sex with a god, or having sperm poured into them from yeah, the god. Exactly, and non-sexual. Yeah, that's a little uh, well, so... but that's still a physical process. But one of the uh, belief systems of the Essenes was non-sexual contact, and so if, if they had to, if they were possibly Essenes, uh, also uh, of their belief system, uh, wouldn't they of knowing that they had to carry on a bloodline uh, uh, engaged in this type of act? Well, the Essenes were capable of doing anything that polytheists do. Scenes were not monotheistic. They were the polytheist uh, aspect of Judaism, just as they're, they're like Kabbalism is a polytheist. Uh, the difference is Kabbalism comes from Babylon. When Judah was in Babylon, that becomes part of their religion. The Essenes take their religion back to Heliopolis, and they say that Moses brought polytheism with them, not monotheism, and so that's the true religion. So they worshipped fallen angels. They wouldn't even give up the names of the angels they worshipped even upon death. I have a great document on who the Essenes were, if people want it. I talk about them in my book, but specifically, if you want historical details and who they are and what their belief systems were and how we know they're talked about in the New Testament and where, I have a great document that outlays that. So, again. I'm not here to, uh, you know, people need to take the information and decide and learn from what they want. I have a distinct Christian biases. Uh, I just look at it and say, from my perspective, I look at polytheism in terms of how they copy things is within monotheism. They're distinctly different, and this is very distinctly different. Okay. Um, but they do. They do create that as a cognate type of thing within polytheism, but that's their belief system. And to, uh, just one last little thing is that, so the tribe of Dan is different, in your opinion, from the Tua de Danin? Yeah. Okay. Not to conflate. The, okay. Cool. No, do not, yeah, should not conflate those. All right. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> well, that's it. Thank you uh, for letting us ask one more round of questions. We really appreciate that. Uh, Gary, do you want to uh, give a shout out uh, and tell people where they can find your book and your website and all that good stuff? Sure. And, and uh, yeah. your next book, too, what the there title is. is right and, up there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There we go. So, so the best way to get a hold of me is through my website, the Genesis6conspiracy.com. That's Genesis6 with the number 6conspiracy.com. On uh, the media page where it says contact the author or author for an interview, 
that's how you get a hold of me. That's my email, genesis6conspiracy at gmail.com. It will come through to me. So if I mentioned a document on the Essenes or the Book of Enoch, or I tend to drop a lot of documents that I never remember, name it by topic if you want it. Uh, I will send it to you at no charge. Uh, and if you want to ask me a question, I will answer your question. It may take me a while to get back to you, uh, but I will get back to you. Uh, just be patient. Um, so that's the best way to get a hold of me if you want to find out a little bit about what's in my current book. I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters on the website, so you're going to get a good feel for the book. It's just a tip of the iceberg as to what's actually in the book. It's 800 pages. There's over 120 pages of uh, endnotes in there. Um, and I show all of my sources, and it's a terrific uh, bibliography. Um, I will, will also be marketing... Um, my new book off of the same website. Um, so if you wanted a signed copy of this one, you can, um, oh, and, and the new book's going to be called Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2, How Understanding uh, Prehistory and Giants Helps to Define End-Time Prophecy. And it's specifically targeted at Christians, and it goes so deep. If you think I was getting Beautiful. deep on details, it goes deeper uh, in this book, and it's designed specifically for Christians on angels, on uh, prophecy on giants, the, the uh, patriarchless tribes, all of that is uh, I, I go through in detail. If you wanted to uh, link over and get a digital version, uh, as you can see by what's on the screen, you can link over to the Kindle version in blue at the bottom. Um, you can also link over from the website, either from the front page or the buy page over to amazon.com, amazon.ca or barnesandnoble.com as well. On the buy page, uh, I live in Canada. So uh, if you live in the U.S., go to the U.S. page. If you live in Canada, go to the Canada page. And uh, if you live overseas anywhere else, there's an overseas page for, for, for people on that. And if you live outside of Canada, which most people do in the world, if the credit card company uh, is... Uh, not putting it through for some reason it's likely because it's an international purchase so you get a hold of the credit card company they'll lift it it's just a security precaution that they put in place excellent excellent thank you very much um yeah thank you so much for being on the show we would love to have you back on again uh possibly after we go through a, a, a few more chapters and uh, have you come on and uh, do a little recap with us? I know you specialize in Genesis 6, but you are a very good expert at, seems like, much of the Bible. So uh, thank you very much for being here. And uh, if any of you guys have some last words for Gary before he leaves, uh, go for it. No, just thank you so much, Gary. This is a pleasure and really learned a lot today. Terrific. Thank you. I'd just like to say that I'm a giant fan. <laughs> <laughs> Could be a Titan fan too. <laughs> Same, Gary. Thank you so much. Um, I can't wait till your new book comes out. We'll be getting a signed copy from you. I'll be ordering that ASAP. So Perfect. Thank you. thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we're all going to stick around, Gary. Uh, so... Uh, if you want to bounce out, you can. Otherwise, uh, we're going to keep on talking a little bit. Yeah, I will bounce out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, oh, you can stay. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it. Oh, sorry about that. Yep. Fa farewell. Good night. Peace. <laughs>
So there we go, everybody. Gary motherfucking Wayne in the house. Uh, that was fascinating discussion. Um, um, there's a lot there. I mean, uh, I feel like Gary's a very talk fast talker. Uh, so even though that was a three hour episode, we probably covered about six hours <laughs> worth of worth of stuff in there. Uh, I know a lot of us, I, I'm sure you guys did too as well, but I, I still had quite a few many uh, more questions to ask him uh, about a lot of things. Yeah. So um, uh, next time, if we can get Gary on away, uh, Gary Wayne on again, uh, I would say, uh, listen to this episode again and write down some more questions. Uh, when it, It'll trigger those same thoughts in your head when you re-listen to it, I guarantee you. Um, so maybe we can get into a certain aspect of the Bible too, because the interesting thing that he said was that the Stuart line, didn't he say the Stuart line comes from the fallen angels uh, or, or that bloodline? Like so then why are we going by... Uh, the King James version, because King James was a steward if he's part of the Nephilim. Well, who's because going by the King James him. version? <laughs> I mean, he was most scared. of America uh, yeah, I guess so. says that King James version is the version to read from. Yeah, right? I think a lot of people, when they start looking into the King James version, they're like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I would guess maybe the... Gen and I feel like the general consensus of a lot of people though they kind of have moved away from king james because it sounds too like old englishy right mm -hmm. uh, but yeah it, it is what a lot of people there's different theories i think on this because some people will say like well king james is older right like shouldn't we go off that thinking that we translate everything from the king james version but a lot of these newer versions are actually looking at the original text and translating them differently um but yeah that's a great point i, I think i just found that out too by the way uh, which that, part? that the one that you read from is actually uh it adds more it keeps more text in versus because you would think that it would you know cut out more text versus put more in you know what i'm saying so right. i just found yeah. that out the newer the newer um uh, versions of the bible keep the older text well, and there's a lots of different versions. So I don't know if you should put them all in one bucket, but a lot of them do. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, so it's possible there could have been a uh, bias in the production. Uh, and is that, is that the point that's kind of being made there about the stewards that they could have influenced the authority there, <laughs> the authorship? Yeah, and I also think it's really interesting, too, because uh, we talk about Shakespeare and uh, Francis Bacon, and Francis Bacon may have having something to do with uh, writing down or editing uh, the King James yeah, Version, if he had put in any of, like, uh, if he edited it in a way to put in ciphers or something to be able to be read. Uh, uh, some type yeah. of biblical code, that would be really interesting to find out. And also the Jacobites or the Jacobites, but I like to call them, uh, they're the ones that came into uh, England, uh, the Northern Europe, and were trying to reinstate the Stuart line. So it's very interesting that you have these mm. Jacobites or Jack Jacobites uh, trying to reinstate that line when, when they say that they are like the chosen people, and so they went to war uh, with these other people in England. So it's very kind of like 
interesting and confusing that you know the jacob line would would try to intervene in keeping the stewards in power uh if they were nephilim because they seemingly seem like they're supposed to be the good guys did so, they wear were those the folks that wore the red caps uh no those were phrygian uh they wore kilts oh okay uh <laughs> but it's interesting because he also talks about like the nephilim bloodlines being red-haired uh and everything and blonde-haired oh uh, okay maybe that's what it's a which of the hat to goes into esau and jacob right and then the scythians who are descendants of the tribe of isaac uh isaac uh issachar uh uh sax isaac's sons the saxons um they're described as having red hair and stuff also and uh I thought it was interesting that he says the tribe of Dan and the Tuatha De Danann are not the same, uh, because seemingly in the Bible it does say that the ten northern tribes moved up into the north to escape Assyrian uh, persecution. So they moved up into those lands of like the Black Sea and uh, uh, between the Caspian and the Black Sea and to the west of the black oh, sea, i can see what you're saying which is all all places named after dan uh the, i think there was actually another place called dan something that's uh right there on the other side of where they believe troy was in turkey right on the other end of the that canal that the black sea flows out of into the mediterranean there was another town there called uh dan something uh i can't recall the name of it so it's just very interesting that there's all these connections to Dan and them coming out from the east and traveling to the northwest um, and and having all of these names associated with them. It seems like it's more than just it's just the Tuatha De Danann and uh, this other tribe called Dan when there's seemingly a lot of connections between the two. So I think that's interesting. They could have they did take uh customs uh, that were not jewish so mm -hmm. it's quite possible they could have did a lot of intermarrying right and you know so maybe what we do have in the north is some like scion you know like for mm -hmm. instance odin <laughs> could have been somebody that came out of the tribe of dan that maybe did it or something like that so it's really hard to say but it does seem like there's a lot of uh parallels there i've often thought that myself actually about the tribe of dan so mm -hmm. um um and then uh, i noticed there was a globus cruciger <laughs> there <laughs> on the screen so uh, that's something i'd like to ask him about the maybe the next time mm -hmm. yeah all fascinating stuff um yeah did you guys have anything else Are you good we can get out of here i'm good 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 morgan good. yeah i can't really think of anything no, I, mean, I took good. a lot of i took a lot of notes but it's stuff <laughs> i can i can wait till next time you know i will yeah. say real quick joshua that uh globus christopher image you saw was a youtube video that he has on his site so i can oh yeah yeah i'll link that for you so you can watch it if you're interested love me some globus cruciger man it's it's uh there's a lot of layers to that you know you'd think oh how much could it be but you never stop learning about it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
I agree. Uh, well, thanks guys uh, for joining me. And uh, I mean, it's our show, so thank you, Gary. Uh, but uh, <laughs> go ahead and give your shout outs to whoever you want. Uh, if you got anything going on, if you got any upcoming events or anything like that, a lot of people know. Nobody does. All right. Well, um, <laughs> we my, you can catch me on Instagram at the Morgan B, um, M O R R I G A N B. Um, I think there's an underscore. I'm not really sure, but um, and then our normal shows, uh, the 88. You can catch me on and um, ebbs and flow. Yep. Thanks for having me. This was fun. And you guys can catch my work at nomad.art. That's G-N-O-M-A-D dot art. And that will have links to all the socials and YouTubes and et cetera. Thank you, Emma. You can find me on Instagram as Appalachian Aesthetic and also on Telegram as Joshua the Branch. Um, I do a lot of um, shows with folks. So if uh, you're listening and you'd like to do something, just let me know. Um, I don't really have a channel of my own though. So maybe one day when I get it all sorted out, I'll, you know, be able to share that. But for now, that's all. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you guys. Uh, I couldn't do the show without you. So you are the show as much as I am the show. So don't forget that. And, uh, thank you everybody for listening, uh, and have a good night. Thank you. Raising my vibration Curses ending with my generation Blessings raining, it's a celebration Go and tell the nation We're all saved by grace And I know I ain't boasting I've been stuck in my ways, man I'm regenerating Raising my vibration Curses ending with my generation Blessings raining, it's a celebration Go and tell the nation We're all saved by grace And I know I ain't boasting I've been stuck in my ways, man I've been stuck in my ways How many days before it's no longer a face God keep giving me grace I'm giving them thanks, I'm giving them praise Giving them thanks, I'm giving them praise I've been stuck in my ways How many days before it's no longer a face God giving me grace I'm giving them praise, giving them thanks Giving them praise, I'm giving them thanks I've been stuck in my ways How many days before it's no longer a face God giving me grace I'm giving them praise, giving them thanks Giving them praise, I'm giving them thanks